this yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from the... <laughs> there you go. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell in the United States' history of settler colonialism. An expropriation of land is far from being limited to the area where I'm sitting right now. In fact, history education in the United States is so poor, it's likely that the vast majority of people here in the West Ridge and Rogers Park neighborhoods in Chicago actually know the name of the tribe that once called this home, or the many other tribes that utilize the area as a seasonal hunting ground. The Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Miami also shared the region with many, many other tribes, Kickapoo, Kickapoo included. But this expropriation and exploitation Kickapoo. <laughs> uh, but this expropriation and exploitation of resources is not only a historical phenomenon, uh, something that happened in a long ago past. No, it continues to this day in a way that very much resembles the settler colonialism, which is the foundation of the United States of America. In a few minutes, we will be speaking with journalist Umar Farouk, who posted the ProPublica article. In Arizona, water ruling, the Hopi tribe sees limits on its future. Arizona's unique method for awarding water to tribes was supposed to open up economic possibilities beyond farming for the Hopi tribe. Instead, the tribe says that it has dashed their dreams of building a thriving homeland. Umar's article was co-published with High Country News, which you can find at hcn.org. High Country News is a website and a monthly independent magazine based in Paonia, Colorado, and covers environmental, social, and political issues in the western United States. Umar is an Ansel Payne Fellow with ProPublica. He was a correspondent for Reuters covering Afghanistan and Pakistan between 2020 and 2021. He's covered two wars in Pakistan, in the Northwest, and in Balochistan. Umar has written about uh, Pakistan's dilemma of how to incorporate its religious and ethnic makeup, as well as how the government has struggled to maintain control and loyalty at its periphery, like in the north at the edge of Central Asia. He's also covered the fallout from conflicts like the cases of thousands of missing persons and the toll of U.S. drone strikes. In 2017, Umar received a grant from the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting to report from Pakistan's federally administrated tribal areas where locals live under a 1901 law that allowed collective punishment. He was one of the few Western journalists to report from places like North Waziristan. He's also uh, reported on religious and ethnic strife in Mexico and in Kyrgyzstan, as well as the ongoing effort by China to incorporate the Uyghur ethnic minority into the country from both inside Xinjiang and among the Uyghur diaspora outside. And the Uyghur diaspora has actually come here to the Devon Avenue area in West Ridge, and they now have a cultural center and refugee center for them as well. Umar is a witness to two violent military coups, a successful one in Egypt, which ended in a massacre, and one that was thwarted by civilian resistance in Turkey and has left an indelible mark on that country. He's covered Afghanistan, Pakistan, Turkey, Syria as a reporter for the Christian Science Monitor, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, and as a staff correspondent for Reuters and Al Jazeera English. His work has also appeared in Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, National Geographic, The Guardian, The Atlantic, The Nation, The New Humanitarian, The Boston Review, The Daily Beast, The Globe and Mail, and many, many other outlets. Follow Umar on Twitter at Umar Farouk underscore. That's U-M-A-R-F-A-R-O-O-Q underscore. Find out more about 
umar at umar underscore farouk.com. Producing is Richard Norwood today. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, podcast host, live streaming host, whatever. Richard, anything new in your world? I haven't seen you for a couple weeks. No, not, uh, not a whole lot. I spent uh, last weekend at my mom's in uh, Pittsburgh. We had a relative who was 90 years old and had a birthday party. Oh, really? It was amazing. How aware were they that they were having a 90th oh, birthday? Oh, she is totally with it. Oh, that's awesome. And she's mobile, and yeah, it's amazing. Wow, that's fantastic for your future. <laughs> well, unfortunately not, because she's not. I'm not a blood descendant from oh, her. <laughs> so that doesn't help you at all. No. I have a lot of people on the bohemian side of my family who live to like 100 years old. Then there's all these people on my Swiss part of my family that live to about 50. (laughs) So I don't know where I'm going to end up. The Irish side, uh, who knows. So what's new by me is I finally sort of, kind of, kind of, maybe, have a clean bill of health for the first time since February of 2022, February of last year, just in time, my clean but bill. What of did health. it cost you to get that clean hill? Up, clean bill, bill of health. Bill of health. Uh, I don't know. Tons of debt. That's what it's cost me. So, uh, yeah. So finally, I've got a clean bill of health for the first time in a long time, and in, and it's just in time for our upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party in Art Show, celebrating 27 years of being on air. All of which is happening on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning when doors open at 3 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And running all day and night with live bands, good food, and a raffle of amazing This Is Hell-related prizes in the opening of This Is Art, the art show that always accompanies our parties. The only thing keeping me from having a perfect bill of health is... I'm still healing from my most recent surgery, a healing process that will continue for at least five more weeks. So according to my surgeon's assistant, everything is going as expected, which is great news as every part of this entire ordeal has had severe and unexpected complications, some of which were very much life-threatening. So I'm getting better. Still not great. But more important than me finally recovering from a near-death experience when my doctor told me I was at death's door and a surgeon explained I had a 60-40 chance of surviving. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? Where did you get that image? (laughs) Well, I went out to lunch one day and it was like they had those uh, um, uh, cards, those those papers taped up at the restaurant at Chipotle. It was hilarious. (laughs) But But I just looked it up. According to Integrated Cash Logistics, there's not so much a corn okay. coin shortage as much as a circulation problem. Oh, which really? I guess amounts to the same thing. But. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I have a circulation problem. <laughs> uh, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The this Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask. The coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And there is the very, very good possibility that we're going to have some brand new merch that will be unveiled at the anniversary party. 
You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Or you can post it on Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can share it at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. Or on our Discord. Or just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Richard, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Besides hanging out at a pool, <laughs> he is... <laughs> He is, is that what he's doing right now? <laughs> he sent me a picture. Oh, nice. <laughs> he is schooling a TEDx stoic. <laughs> there's, a, there's stoics on TEDx. I was totally unaware. You would think a stoic would not want to give a TEDx talk by the whole nature of stoicism. Coming up, the theft of indigenous resources continues in the United States. Richard will share more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. And uh, following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And the way that justice is meted out against indigenous people in the United States has always been, at the very least, very least, problematic. At its worst, it has been genocidal, often starving indigenous out of their homes and off of their land. This process apparently is continuing to this day in Arizona for the Hopi people. Here to help us have a better understanding of the challenges that still face the indigenous when it comes to access to resources that are absolutely necessary to survive, journalist Omar... Er, I knew I was going to do that once. Journalist Umar Farouk posted the ProPublica article in Arizona, Water Ruling the Hopi Tribe Sees Limits on Its Future. Welcome to This Is Hell, Umar. Hey, how are you doing? Thanks for having me on. And uh, it's the same name, so don't worry. People say Omar, people say Umar. So. Yeah, but I don't want to make that mistake. It's just that I know <laughs> people named Omar, and so <laughs> that's why I stumbled on it. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. You can follow Umar on Twitter at Umar Farouk underscore, and you can find out more about Umar at his website, Umar, Umar underscore Farouk dot com. You start your report by just saying, you know, a really simple sentence. In September 2020, the Hopi tribe's four-decade effort to secure its right to water culminated in a court proceeding. It's right to water. So, Umar, how little control do Arizona's Hopi have over the water they do have access to? And is this about a bigger issue of everyone having right to water? Um, they have some control over the groundwater that's under them, you know, according to the laws in Arizona. Um, but the problem for them is that that water is not reliable um, going into the future. And it's not reliable partly because some mining companies used it up over the last few decades and really decimated their supply. Um, so they don't, you know, they don't really have access to a viable source of water um, that they would need to continue kind of building a homeland. Is this about a bigger issue of right to water for everyone, or is this just a specific instance? It's a part of a bigger issue, um, you know, uh, of, of water access in, in that whole region. Um, as you know, probably, you know, there's a mega, a mega drought that's been going on in the Southwest and everyone is kind of worried about where water is going to come for, um, come from for, for cities, for farming, for industry. Um, 
So one part of that is, you know, 30 sovereign nations that are located in this Colorado River Basin in the Southwest. And so they're looking at what's going on with, with water access, and they're really worried that they're going to be left out of whatever the final equation is of who gets water. So how dependent on the federal government are the Hopi or the other tribes in the region for water? And is that dependence absolutely necessary? Is there any other way that they could get access to water other than having the help of either federal or local governments? Well, they need help for two reasons. One is the legal reason, um, uh, you know, diverting uh, rivers uh, in that region or, or large tributaries in that region can't be done without proper kind of uh, a legal right to it that a court or someone comes out and says this particular party has a right to use this much water from the source. So there's an overall kind of paper issue. But the other big issue is the money that goes into building the infrastructure to move water around in the desert. Um, and the Hopi tribe just doesn't have that kind of money. And most tribes in that area don't have that kind of money to build some of the huge dams and canals that would be needed uh, to, to move this water around to where people can use it. You write of the September 2022, or sorry, 2020 court proceeding, uh, the outcome would determine how much water the uh, arid reservation would receive over the next century and whether that amount would be enough for the tribe to pursue its economic ambitions. Under rules unique to Arizona, the tribe would have to justify how it would use every drop it wanted. How much of a challenge is it for the tribe to accurately predict a century of economic ambitions and the amount of water that will be needed to attain those ambitions, especially in light of climate change and the unpredictability of droughts and floods as climate change, you know, continues. So how much of a challenge? I mean, how can you how could anybody at this stage Mm -hmm. accurately predict how much water they're going to need and if they're going to be able to attain their economic ambitions? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I think you could do a mental exercise and try to imagine if someone asked the city of Phoenix or the city of Tucson to go this, uh, you know, go through the same process in a court. Um, You know, it might be a little bit different for a city because they have to, you know, they might just have to come up with like a population estimate for 100 years from now. But they also have to come up with an estimate of what kind of major industries they're going to let operate in the city that would use use the water as well. what kind of projects they want, whether they want everything from like a water park or they want, you know, um, you know, like swimming pools and recreational use, golf courses. So if you think about it first, uh, in terms of what a city would have to do, it would have to go through uh, a similar kind of process. But the additional problem for tribes like the Hopi is that, first of all, that is the land that they have to live on. Um, not only are they confined to staying on that reservation, you know, in order to Uh, continue as a sovereign nation, but also they are tied uh, religiously to that land. There are places there that they go and and worship that they consider sacred. So it's not, you know, it's not a question of whether they can just get up and move. So when a tribe has to kind of go through uh, this process that we described in the story in in Arizona, um, they have to end up justifying, you know, why they need a certain amount of water, what they're going to use it for. And the point of the story was kind of to show just how invasive the process has become in Arizona. And it's unique. Nowhere else in the country would a tribe have to really put everything on the line, put everything in front of a court and have, uh, you know, 90 witnesses 
from all kinds of different opposing parties argue over exactly what they need water for. You quote Chairman Timothy Nuv Angyaoma calling it the fight of our lives. You describe the rules, as you were just saying, as being unique to Arizona. Why does Arizona have a unique set of rules insisting the Hopi explain how every drop of water is used? Is it simply because water is so scarce in Arizona? Does Arizona need unique rules to protect what little water they have access to? Or are these unique rules about something other than resource conservation? Uh, Other states also have, you know, small water supplies, constrained water supplies, and we haven't seen them uh, go to these these lengths uh, when it comes to negotiating with the tribe. Um, So I I don't really buy the argument that Arizona has less water to go around, that it somehow has a unique problem. Um, Out in the Southwest, a bunch of states have this problem. Um, And really, if we look at the history of it, Arizona has deliberately tried to find ways to get around um, giving water to tribes in the state. Um, and this is kind of the end result of that, of that you know, decades-long process where it's just kind of refused to go along with some of the standards that the rest of the country is following. So is that reflective of the weakness of federal rules and the ability to enforce them and, and make certain that they are imposed upon the state of Arizona? Uh, definitely the federal government has a role uh, as an arbitrator, as a representative of tribes when it comes to these these negotiations and, and these court cases. And uh, so there's a lot of responsibility on the federal government um, for the fact that it's kind of left the Hopi by the wayside. Um, the federal government was also a party to this case, and they also brought witnesses in this court case that we described. Um, but, you know, that turned out to really not be not be enough. And the federal government has a historic kind of responsibility, you know, uh, more than 100 years now in the Southwest, the US has been spending billions and billions of dollars uh, for dams and canal projects and pumps and power stations um, to really help these other cities, non-native cities uh, grow and thrive. Um, So they have this historical negligence that's been going on. And they have this current, uh, you know, at best, you could say, apathy or ambivalence to what what the Hopi went through and what other tribes are going through. So federal and local governments are going through this process to determine how much water the Hopi need. How much of, say, do the Hopi have in this process? Because it, it sounds like to me... If you're somebody who's Hopi, you're, you have absolutely no control in two parties, the state of Arizona and the federal government of the United States, that have had a historic, historical uh, antagonistic relationship with indigenous peoples. I mean, it, it would seem like they would feel like they're just left out of the picture and that the people making the decisions, neither one of them is on their side. Uh, that's what it seems like. And that's what uh, the chairman with Timothy, you know, where his frustration Uh, comes from in this whole process that um, the tribe has been trying for decades to, uh, you know, fight in court or to get an out out of court settlement. Um, And they're kind of, you know, he he kept saying when I talked to him about this court case that we were forced to go to court, like we didn't want to go through this process, but this is the only avenue that's left to us. So, you know, we're called into court because we say we want uh, access to water. And we're being forced to go through this really insulting process uh, that, you know, culminated more than four decades ago or started more than four decades ago 
and culminated in this trial. So if they can't redress their uh, grievances with the federal or local government, is this in a bigger picture? Is this a failure of democracy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say so. It's a failure to you know protect people that are citizens of Arizona and people who are citizens of the United States who just so happen to also have another political affiliation with the tribe. Um, so that's that's another kind of interesting thing, not just in this story, but in in this project where we looked at tribal water access in the Southwest. Another thing that keeps coming up is that people point out, you know, people really see this as like a zero sum game as a competition. It's it's not really a competition between like the city of Flagstaff and the, you know, uh, 7,000 or so Hopi living on the Hopi reservation. Those Hopi are also citizens of Arizona, citizens of the US, they have a right to uh, access to water, just like anyone in any other city would have. So does the state of Arizona have a unique relationship with indigenous tribes? Is there a greater degree of antagonism between indigenous and state, local, and, uh, you know, even at the social level? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the history, you know, you could look at a lot of different kind of avenues to explore that antagonism. Um, but I think like access to water is, uh, is, is one avenue, one window into it. Um, there's a saying in the Southwest, uh, you know, uh, they like to say that like whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting. Um, so it's almost like they are proud of the fact that they uh, will go to really great lengths to fight over water um, when it comes to tribes. Um, and I can talk a little bit about the history of how Arizona has has ended up in that way. Um, sure. So, yeah. So, so a lot of the West was settled by people uh, who came from other parts of the country. I'm talking about the last, you know, 200 years or so. And when they arrived in the Southwest, you know, the biggest thing you needed was water. Um, and a lot of these places are just like deserts. So for these cities to spring up out of nowhere, you need the most basic thing you need is water. So um, immediately there were conflicts that were set up um, in some places, you know, settlers like Mormon settlers had conflicts with local tribes. Um, and, and, you know, the U.S. Army would come in because of some of these conflicts and start these wars and kind of move move tribes around. And eventually, you know, by the late 1800s, we have a reservation system that's in place um, where people have signed treaties, signed truces, um, saying, OK, we'll stay on this land um, if you let us build a homeland on it and we'll stop fighting you and you stop attacking us. So that's what happened with, with the Hopi, that's what happened with the Navajo. Um, and the problem was that they you know, had certain needs to build a homeland there. They needed water, it was the biggest need in the Southwest. And um, they would notice over time that uh, other parties would start using the water that was entitled to them. So whether that was mining companies that came in, um, in places like Arizona and New Mexico, or it was big farming operations, you know, like if you talk about the Imperial Valley uh, farming area in California. So they had these on and off kind of conflicts that went on um, really, you know, up until, you know, this this century, up until the last 50 or 60 years in, in, in as real conflicts. Um, so, for example, there's a tribe called the White Mountain Apache tribe in Arizona and the White Mountain Apache tribe had a right 
and, and, you know, a court rulings that said they could divert some of the streams that were on their own reservation and use some of the water for, for things that they wanted. And in the 1950s, one of the things they wanted to do was they wanted to build some lakes um, to be able to do recreation, to do tourism, to do like hunting and fishing on their reservation. So at some point they diverted, uh, you know, a small stream on their land in the 1950s. And when they did this, when word of it got out to the non-native counties near their reservation, there was actually a standoff in the 1950s where armed police uh, who had been sent by um, a private public corporation called the Salt River Project, uh, a utility corporation that handles water deliveries to the state of Arizona. Um, you know, they got the sheriff to send out uh, police to the reservation and there was a standoff for a couple of days between police and uh, White Mountain Apache tribal police over this over this diversion. Um, so even until the 1950s, you see these real, um, this conflict kind of playing out physically in, in the real world. And then what happens after that is you get something called, you know, it moves kind of off into the legal world. And the legal world kind of starts with this federal amendment uh, called the McCarran Amendment, which basically says that if, you know, normally federal water, uh, you know, in rivers and, and streams that might cross state boundaries, that kind of water is controlled by the federal government. And if parties want to uh, make a case in court that they have a right to it, those parties can go to a federal court to make that argument. But after the McCarran Amendment, um, you start having the allowance that uh, state courts themselves can adjudicate these claims, including claims by federal entities, including claims by tribes. Um, and that starts this whole kind of process where tribes are very, uh, uh, you know, they're not optimistic about how a court in Arizona is going to treat their claims. Um, and so that process goes on until, you know, the 1980s, you have like the early 1980s, the tribes that had legally objected to this whole process make it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has a big hearing uh, about whether or not state courts can, can handle tribal water claims. And in that hearing, again, you have that same utility, the Salt River Project. Their lawyers, there's a senator named uh, John Kyle, who was their main lawyer, um, goes in front of the Supreme Court and successfully convinces the court that, you know, don't mess with the system. The state of Arizona is going to make sure that these tribes get their water. Um, and even when John Kyle made that argument in the Supreme Court, there were tens of thousands of parties to these cases in Arizona, including tribes, you know, the, these cases that looked like they were going to drag on for decades. Um, and that's exactly kind of what happened uh, in Arizona. Uh, after that Supreme Court case, um, other states who were also worried about this issue went back and really tried to solve the tribal water rights problem. So other states like Colorado, Montana, you know, they set up special tribal water courts. They set, uh, you know, they set up committees to deal with uh, tribal water claims. Um, and it took them a few decades, but they had a very different, open, uh, you know, serious process to deal with these tribal water claims. Arizona didn't do anything like that. Arizona set up a really court system um, that tribes would have to go through. 
it was a court system where you have these two huge uh, adjudications that are still going on. Um, and the state's law basically said, if anyone claims water use, uh, you know, over any river or any of its tributaries, they all have to be parties to these cases. And so today we have more than 100,000 parties that are cases to these two big uh, river adjudications in the state of Arizona. Um, and that whole process is overseen by one judge in Arizona, Supreme Court, who works part-time on the issue. And his technical advisor is uh, an office called the Special Water Master. Special Water Master until last year only had one part-time clerk working with them. Um, and the, their other kind of state technical advisors, the Arizona Department of Water Resources, whose job it is to sit there and figure out um, exactly how much water everyone is currently using, how much water is available in aquifers and streams, things like that. And, and they were terribly under-resourced as well. And so the result is that a tribe like the Hopi tribe, whose claim started in 1978 in Arizona, you know, their claim for, for water in Arizona started in 1978, and it took until 2020 to get to a point in an Arizona courtroom where they could actually start bringing witnesses, start bringing plans to for their kind of future water use and and make these arguments. Um, so first of all, Arizona's whole like legal infrastructure for dealing with tribal water rights is a is like a joke, and they don't take any of this seriously, and just takes very very long to get to the point that the Hopi got to. And the other thing that Arizona did, uh, which is what the story is is really talking about is that in the 2000s, they decided to ignore the precedent that the rest of the country followed when it came to trying to quantify how much water a tribe actually needs. Um, and the rest of the country relies on a 1963 Supreme Court precedent, which makes it pretty simple. It says how much possibly fertile land is there on a reservation. Uh, just take that number of acres, multiply it by a number, and you'll get certain amount of water that this tribe is minimum, you know, entitled to, because we think that farming is going to be their biggest use of water. Um, and so Arizona threw that standard out and they said, oh, we're going to use this new way where we're not just going to look at farming, we're going to look at a tribe's uh, uh, historic use of water, uh, you know, its future farming needs, its future economic needs, its future cultural needs. Um, we're going to pin down what its population is going to be, you know, in a century from now. Um, and then we're going to give it all to this special water master who, like I said, is severely under-resourced and, you know, overworked. Um, and this special water master is just going to come up with a number. And that's what happened in this Hopi case. And they came out with a pretty crazy number uh, that's, you know, less than a third of what the tribe was hoping to get. And this is the first case in Arizona that's gotten to this point with a tribe. And it's a pretty crazy precedent that would be set. And you write that this new standard offered tribes an opportunity to shape their plans for economic development and growth beyond farming. But the Hopi case, the first adjudicated under this process, showed it also came at a high cost with uncertain outcomes. Were those high costs and uncertain outcomes hidden from the Hopi or were the Hopi, as well as the state potentially, simply overly optimistic? Was this a disingenuous process or done in good faith yet still resulted in poor outcomes? 
I think uh, the Hopi tribe was equally surprised by it. This this process is pretty opaque. Um, all they really had to start with was uh, an earlier uh, 2001 Arizona Supreme Court ruling, which said these really broad things about what we're going to do beyond uh, farming, what we're going to look at to when you know to determine how much water a tribe needs. None of that was kind of seen in the real world until the Hopi trial happened. Um, no one really knew what the spe special water master was going to come back and 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 decide on. No one knew like what kind of questions would be allowed to be asked in court, um, what kind of deliberations would happen, what kind of arguments you could make. Um, and the Hopi tribe was really taken by surprise by all of this. And they spent a huge amount of their budget, probably millions of dollars. They haven't said exactly how much because, you know, tribes sometimes want to keep some of their budget details secret. But I think they spent millions of dollars hiring some of the top experts uh, in the world, the top, uh, you know, Ivy League uh, economists, people who advise the World Bank, some of the top anthropologists and some of the top sociologists um, in this trial to come and make arguments for why the Hopi needed water. So it was a totally kind of untested process. And you mentioned due to the large number of parties that we were just talking about and the underfunding of both the state courts and Arizona's Department of Water Resources, the case moved at a snail's pace, as you were mentioning before. But who benefits from it working only at a snail's pace? How does the public even benefit from the underfunding of both the state courts and Arizona's Department of Water Resources? Yeah, I think the, you know, Politicians like to make an argument in Arizona that nobody benefits from this, what they call uncertainty um, in, in water claims in the state. Uh, you know, they say, you know, it makes it uncertain what a city like Flagstaff or a city like Phoenix is going to be able to have uh, in terms of water in the future. But really, that's kind of a terrible, uh, I think that that's not honest. Uh, there are people who are benefiting, uh, you know. Every mining company that continues to use water for free, uh, every you know, um, every city, every every industry in that area that uses water for free benefits. So, in the case of the Hopi specifically, um, there was a company called the Peabody Coal Company, and the Peabody Coal Company in the 1960s won contracts with the Hopi and the Navajo to build these huge coal mining plants on their reservation. And the contracts allowed them to pump water out of the ground, basically unmonitored, un, uh, uncontrolled water to uh, develop that coal. Uh, and the coal went to power a major power plant called the Navajo Generating Station. And that station uh, ran pumps, which pumped water to other cities in Arizona cities like Phoenix and Tucson and farming areas in Arizona, uh, cities out in the desert that would not have had access to water. So the water that was owed to the Hopi tribe or that should have been given to the Hopi tribe was instead being pumped to non-native cities for decades. And it was being pumped in a way that not only were we extracting coal from the Hopi tribe and the Navajo tribe at a really crazy under market rate, uh, but these companies were also literally, you know, emptying out the water from under the feet of the Hopi. So is the expansion of cities like Phoenix and Arizona, 
Is that all at the expense of the suffering of Hopi and other indigenous people on reservations? Is the foundation of the expansion of these huge cities that we're seeing over and over again in the Southwest? Is this all paid for by the suffering of native peoples? I I absolutely think so. Yeah, these these cities would not exist without, uh, you know, the federal government, the local government and corporations being able to exploit the natural resources that Native American communities should have had a right to. Um, and, you know, water and electricity are two basics without which a city like Phoenix would never, you know, would never have mushroomed to the size it is now. So all of that urban sprawl in Phoenix uh, would not have been possible without this uh, exploitation. You mentioned coal earlier. You write that the Hopi tribe has inhabited villages in northeastern Arizona for more than 1,100 years. In the time since white settlers arrived, the Hopi tribe's water supply has been decimated by drought and coal companies' unchecked groundwater pumping. And as you say, they get that water for free. But in the past two decades, coal has dropped from providing Arizona with more than a third of its energy to less than an eighth today. It's behind now. Natural gas and nuclear power and solar is about to catch up to coal. Is coal extraction still an ongoing threat to the water supply, despite the fact that Arizona doesn't depend upon coal for its energy grid anymore, as much as it used to in the past? Uh, Coal itself is not a threat right now to the Hopi and the Navajo. And I talk about the Navajo as well, because both of them share this land and this aquifer that they sit on top of. Um, so coal itself is is not a threat, but there's mining of other mi- minerals that continue. So there's a large project called the Rosemont uh, Copper Mine Project. Uh, I think it's outside of Tucson, uh, which people have been fighting, uh, tribes have been fighting against, environmental groups have been fighting against uh, for, for a while now, but it looks like it's still going to go ahead. So other mining operations, which will use water as well, um, are still still kind of going on. Um, and you also mentioned that the court examined lists of, as you were pointing out earlier, sacred springs, sites the Hopi traditionally kept secret to preserve them, to decide how much water could be drawn from them for future religious ceremonies. Using sacred secret springs as a water resource it sounds antithetical to religious respect, customs, freedom. Is use of sacred springs blasphemous, heretical to some, to uh, in some ways to the Hopi people? Is this is this an infringement upon their religious freedom? And is there any way that they might be able to hope for a court to rule in such a case? Um, it wasn't that they. Uh, uh, that water, you know, in in the court case, different types of uses of water are, are, are talked about. Um, so one of them is for religious and ceremonial use. So I don't think the Hopi, the Hopi did actually use some of these springs. Uh, if you go to a lot of the Hopi villages now, they'll be centered around old springs. Um, and, you know, naturally people would have settled around a source of water. And some of those springs are in, in inhabited areas and some of them are in pretty remote areas. But they're all, you know, uh, they're all very sacred to to the Hopi. So um, maybe someone could come back and make an argument that this is some kind of infringement because you're limiting uh, the amount of water that we're entitled to based on a certain amount for each each spring. Um, 
I think that's just like one of the kind of crazy cultural uh, issues that came up uh, in this trial. You cite uh, Chairman Timothy saying, I would define it as modern day genocide, withholding water, which is life for the Hopi, until an undetermined time is really a position to kill off a tribe that's been here since time immemorial. What does he mean by withholding water? Is there water that could be supplied that would not have an adverse effect on the local or regional water supply? Yeah. Uh, so there's a, the Little Colorado River runs pretty close to the Hopi Reservation. Um, the federal government could come in and build dams and pipelines to move that water uh, to where the Hopi could use it. Um, so the Hopi have been waiting for, for decades for someone like the federal government to come in and say, okay, we're going to help you out and we're going to spend this money um, uh, to, to get you this water. And so that's what Timothy was talking about there, that um, without that water, without that, that funding, uh, you know, people are not going to stay on the reservation uh, and people are not going to move back to the reservation. And that's the most basic job that someone like Timothy has. Uh, you know, that's what tribal leaders want. You want a thriving reservation. You don't want something that, you know, people are leaving from, that young people are leaving from because they can't stay there. They can't make a home there. Um, and so this court ruling uh, puts a number now um, on the legal amount of water that the Hopi are entitled to but it still does nothing to bring all the infrastructure to actually get that water to the Hopi. And so that's what Timothy's kind of talking about there, that this whole process of what the federal government has let Arizona do um, is making this process so, so long and so, un, you know, uh, ambiguous and uncertain for the Hopi tribe uh, that it, it's very real consequences that people don't want to live on the reservation. Um, or they don't want to live there full time. Um, and that, in the long run, is going to destroy the social structure. It's going to destroy the community. It's going to make it, you know, maybe it'll end up as a random tourist distraction, you know, when you're driving along the highway in Arizona, instead of like a real town or a city where people are living and, and a culture kind of is vibrant and alive. We are speaking with journalist Umar Farouk, who posted the ProPublica article in Arizona Water Ruling, The Hopi Tribe Sees Limits on Its Future. You can find the article not only at ProPublica, but at High Country News as well. So you write that if the Hopi decree survives the tribe's planned appeal, other tribes will be subjected to the same scrutiny of their way of life, said Rhett Larson, a professor of water law at Arizona State University. You then quote Larson saying, it's a big deal for the history of water law in the United States of America and what it means to be a Native American tribe. Could mm -hmm. this decision be turned on those who are not indigenous in tribes or live on reservations? How might this decision have a negative impact on everyone, indigenous or not, especially as places like Phoenix are already being you know, facing water sh shortages, which will likely get worse and worse with climate change? I think as long as you keep the uncertainty for, for these tribes in Arizona, um, when it comes to how much water they're entitled to, uh, it, it hurts uh, ordinary people, non-native people living in, in cities um, because they, they don't know exactly what the future is going to hold. Um, it affects probably corporations as well, but I don't really care about what's happening to them. Um, 
you know, they've already kind of profited from all this. Uh, so this kind of uncertainty really uh, is, is detrimental to folks. Um, and one of the other stories we did in, in this project uh, talks about the, uh, you know, kind of like one possible solution to, to this drought in the Southwest, um, which everyone knows, but no one is, no one has done anything about, which is the idea that even when a tribe gets a quantified amount of water, like the Hopi, um, they don't get the infrastructure to use all that water, right? So on paper, a lot of tribes in Arizona have a lot of water. They have, uh, we calculated at least, you know, more than a million acre feet, which is several times, to give you an idea, several times the amount of water that Las Vegas uses, or, you know, a big fraction of the total amount of water from the Colorado River Basin is, uh, you know, this more than million acre feet of water that tribes in that region have a legal right to, um, but they can't physically use. Um, and a lot of them don't want to physically use it. They can't really think of what to do with it. Um, and they would rather be able to partake in this, uh, you know, pricing system that's happening now in the Southwest where people are leasing their water uh, for one year at a time to other places that need it. Um, so, you know, like there's like the Gila River Indian community, they have a lot of water that they have a right to, but they can't use. And so they have uh, agreements now, which let them sell that water to places like Phoenix and places like Tucson, uh, where that water is needed. But until you kind of work out these water claims with the tribes in Arizona, you won't have an idea of exactly how much free water is floating around. Um, and when you have an idea of exactly, I don't mean free, like no price, but like unused water. And when you have an idea of how much unused water is floating around, then you can actually start to come up with solutions and you can be like, okay, we're gonna buy this, this much water from you and we're gonna be able to use it in this other place. So it's actually a pretty quick and easy kind of solution to the drought in the Southwest because a lot of the drought in the Southwest is on paper. It's like people worrying about the total entitlement that a state like Arizona or Utah has and the fact that they've already reached that limit. Um, and so you could really solve this problem for, for non-natives in the region too, if you just sat down and you're like, we're gonna just, figure out exactly how much water tribes need and what's left over, we're gonna move it around. That is just amazing. I'm taking notes right now so we can have a good pull quote for our website. You write that the uh, case involving Hopi water rights began in 1978 when the Phelps Dodge Mining Company filed suit against the state and all over uh, and all other water users to protect its claims in the little Colorado River watershed. Under Arizona law, the only way to quantify a single water claim was to litigate all regional claims at once. Soon the Hopi tribe and thousands of others with claims became parties to the case in the Supreme Court of Arizona. I, I bring this up because Phelps Dodge, which in 2007 was bought up by the uh, multinational global mining company Freeport McMarin, uh, that uh, company Phelps Dodge has a very colonial past, first working as an import-export business operating out of Liverpool that dealt in plantation cotton from the deep south in the United States, then moved on to mining copper as well as coal in the southwest, polluting the water supply of the indigenous and often forcing them uh, to move off their land. In 1917, they also 
arrested 1,300 striking miners at gunpoint in the early morning hours, deporting them secretly as they had also cut the telegraph and telephone lines. This is not a company with a good history, obviously, when it comes to race or labor relations or the environment. Was this a matter of everyone, including the state, against Phelps Dodge? Was this Phelps Dodge trying to lay claim to all water local reservations depended upon for their drinking water and their survival? What were the interests of Phelps Dodge, not only in conflict with those of the indigenous, but also those of the non-indigenous? They certainly should have been seen uh, in the way that they were in conflict with everyone uh, in, in a place like Arizona, um, because they are an outside user, they're a corporate user. We're not talking about people needing water for, for drinking at home. Uh, we're talking about a mining company that's looking to profit off of what they can dig up out of the ground. Um, but uh, that's not how it practically end, ended up in court. And um, those cases, even today, you always see the tribe on one side and everyone else basically on the other side. Um, you know, the mining companies team up with cities and towns. They pool their money together to hire experts to argue against what a tribe is arguing in a court. Um, and, and, you know, we saw that again, even at the federal level at the Supreme Court, uh, you know, last, uh, you know, the last few months, people have been talking about this Supreme Court ruling about the Navajo water case, which stems from all of this frustration that the Navajo have over not getting uh, water claims settled in Arizona. Um, and when this case went in front of the Supreme Court, you had the Navajo on one side and you had the federal government, you had uh, states out in the West, you had uh, scores and scores of corporations and towns and municipalities and cattle ranchers and farming companies all arrayed against the Navajo Nation. Um, so it should have been seen as a, you know, as a, as an argument between one entity of, of Arizona citizens, name, namely the Diné people, the Navajo people. And it should have been seen as the state of Arizona and the federal government helping that entity, helping those, those citizens against other you know, corporate interests and other interests trying to argue over that same water. But that's not how it played out in the Supreme Court. And that's not how it has played out in Arizona courts, including if you go back to a company like, uh, you know, Phelps Dodge or a company like Peabody or Freeport Macmoran now. It's in court, uh, the tribe is sitting on one side of the table often by itself and everyone else is on the other side. Just a few more questions for you. You mentioned Susan Ward Harris, the watermaster who delivered the 2022 decree and you say the reservation's population currently about 7,800 or 7,000, I'm sorry, would peak at 18,255 by 2110, Harris decided. She also decreed the tribe would get water to only mitigate 30, I'm sorry, irrigate 38% of farmland it planned to. It was denied water for a cattle operation saying it, quote, would not be feasible, practical, or provide economic benefits based on the court's assessment of the current market. Harris also declared the coal operations that were planned were not economically feasible. Some $10 billion in economic development projects uh, presented in detail to the court were deemed unrealistic. So 
Should we be glad the coal operation was turned down? <laughs> you know, uh, there's a diversity of views even within uh, Native folks in that region over whether or not uh, some of these resource exploitation programs like coal mining uh, is something that they should be pursuing. Um, but I'll, you know, I, I leave it to the Hopi leadership and, and what, they, what they had decided they want to try for in the future. And one of the things they wanted to try were uh, some coal mining operations, some uh, power power plants that would use coal and, and other resources together. Um, so on the one hand, you know, it is true that, like you mentioned earlier in the show, that coal is no longer uh, a cash cow in Southwest. Um, it's, it's not like a viable, maybe a profitable thing to, to use in the, in the future. Um, but you kind of also have to look at it from the tribes' point of view. Uh, you know, they're in this economic conundrum because for decades, white people came and used their coal. And now those same white people are turning around and telling them, uh, it's not your turn. You can't, you can't make money off of that same thing. You also point out how Chairman Timothy said the decree suggested the state and non-Native peoples believed the tribe was incapable of carrying out its ambitious economic plans. It closed the door on future growth and overall was, quote-unquote, insulting. Yeah. Did, uh, well, did, did, did the Native communities, did they have the capabilities? Because this is a repeated refrain with Indigenous communities. Aid would do no good because the Indigenous are sadly so impoverished in every way. Tribe members would not even know what to do with any assistance, with any funds, with any support that they got, that they do mm-hmm. not have the ability to take care of themselves to no fault of their own. That's always a way a liberal would say it. Did the Native communities have the capabilities to put forth these uh, economic plans? And, and did they have evidence that showed they could? They brought pretty detailed plans to the court. They brought uh, industry experts, um, you know, explaining how much, you know, really charting out how much it would cost and how they'd go about building, say, a coal, uh, a coal mining operation there, how they'd build like a solar project there, um, how they'd build uh, a farming, a cattle farming operation. They, they brought, you know, experts in, in a lot of these fields, probably the same level of expertise that would be brought if, you know, a, a company was pitching this idea to investors in, in, in Flagstaff or Phoenix or something. Um, so they did their, they did a lot of their homework. Um, it's not rocket science to build a solar power plant out there on the Hopi reservation. I think they're perfectly capable of doing it. Um, and that's why Timothy, you know, saw it as, as insulting when the court came back and said, you guys are not, these are like stupid plans. These aren't going to work out. It was more than $10 billion worth of economic plans that the tribe brought in front of the court um, over months and months explained by experts. Uh, so I think that they're perfectly capable of doing it. Uh, you know, you can always hire the right people to, to do the right project. So Everybody else does. Why, why can't the hope? Right. We have been speaking with journalist Umar Farouk, who posted the ProPublica article in Arizona Water Ruling, The Hopi Tribe Sees Limits on Its Future. You can find Umar's article not only at ProPublica, but also at High Country News. Uh, You can follow Umar on Twitter at Umar Farouk underscore, and you can find out more about him at his website, 
umar underscore farouk.com. One last question for you, Umar. And as we do with uh-huh. all of our guests, I promise, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write that Chairman Timothy called this modern-day genocide. How fair is it to call this modern-day genocide? And if it is, are human rights groups, local, national, or international, are the two major political parties, is the press, other than high country news and ProPublica, bringing attention to what Chairman Timothy calls a modern-day genocide? So is that a fair thing to call it? And to what extent is the press, are uh, non-governmental organizations, or even government parties uh, actually doing something to try to stop this modern-day genocide? Um, I think it's a pretty accurate kind of uh, description. Um, these are policies that are meant to wipe out a culture. Uh, and that's, you know, cultural genocide is, you know, that's that's kind of d- the definition of one type of genocide um, that happens in the modern world today. Um, so I think it's a it's a good, you know, it's a viable description of what's what's going on. And I think it doesn't get nearly enough attention as it should be getting um, there's so much press coverage of the drought in the Southwest every day, dozens of stories and senators having press conferences and, you know, um, cabinet members of Biden administration flying down and having press conferences. But uh, this is a very real issue, uh, like in the Hopi case, that could wipe out a culture in the Southwest. One of the most important things that I've learned from our conversation today is how this is a drought on paper. And that's something that people should be more and more aware of. Umar, I really appreciate you being on the show. We'd love to have you back on the show for a follow-up on this or your continued reporting on indigenous lack of accessibility to water in the Southwest. Thank you so much for being on. This is absolutely fantastic work. And now, again, I want to make sure everybody understands, if you go to ProPublica.com, you will find earlier articles on the same investigation as well as you can find it at High Country News. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. All right. Take care. You too. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell, and there's nothing quite like the grief caused to this day by the misery imposed on the indigenous as well as the denialism around the indigenous genocide that is the foundation of the nation we celebrate every 4th of July and Thanksgiving. If what you just heard from Umar on the plight of the Hopi and their access or lack of access to safe, clean water yet again made you realize, yes, this is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Or you can show your appreciation for a completely listener-supported this is hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, we do not take any grant money. None of our affiliates give us any money for airing our show. We do not have any grants. We, we, we don't have enough profits to be a not-for-profit. So we are completely dependent upon you, our listening audience, for the continuation of our show. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from Helen? Tell us how our listeners are responding on, what are we doing right now? Is this uh, Discord, Twitter? What are we doing? I can't, oh, I got to run down right in front of me. Look at this. Uh, yeah, Discord well, and Twitter. I, I might need a little help on that, but this week's question from Hell is, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding during this national coin shortage? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, 
Man, people are running in the streets. I've seen pitchforks and torches. People are freaked out about this, man. Yeah, from uh, Patreon, we have See You Next Tuesday. Answers, make chain mail. <laughs> okay. <Ridiculous>. And uh, <laughs> let me get the Discord. We have a couple answers there. We have Kim G answering, I'm keeping them as a treasure for the person who sorts out my stuff to find when I'm dead. You know, that hits a little bit too close to home for me. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people die and you find lots of change at their house. Yes. And next we have exact yeah, 0422. Yeah, whatever. Up my monthly contribution to the This Is Hell Patreon. <laughs> there you go. Now, did you guys do any of the Facebook ones? Nope. Okay, so there's a... There's quite a list there. Yeah, we uh, Twitter. So you've done Twitter, Discord, Patreon so far, uh, correct? I did not do Twitter. That will be. I'll have to look into that. All right. So just let's uh, get some Facebook ones yeah. done, and then we'll move on. What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? Nick A answers. I will. I always trade them up. Trade them in for a one-up when I get to one hundred. <laughs> okay. Austin H. answers, a very elaborate coin-based Rube Goldberg machine. Sweet. Oli S. answers, how can there be a national corn coin? <laughs> I know. Coin shortage is really easy to say, corn shortage. <laughs> Isn't there exactly, give or take, the same amount of coins in circulation as before? Who is hoarding all the coins? Good question. It's not me. Right. What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? John T. answers, generally, I use those normally to get fewer coins. That's true. Jack B. answers, put them in a sock for protection. We have lots of sock protection answers. Man. yeah. Audience okay. got a little bit violent on their <laughs> penny collections. Andrea J. answers, swim in, swim in them like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> that immediately put an image in my head, so thank you for the semiotics. David H. answers, coins are for parking meters. I have to hoard my pounds when the other option is unique payment apps for every car park. Hmm. Must be from England. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> David Z. answers, phone calls. Duh. <laughs> what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? Absentee answers, buy indulgences in case I end up in purgatory. All right. Kelly H. answers, couch seasoning. <laughs> okay. Mark A. answers, putting all the coins behind my ear in case a magician walks by. <laughs> That's great. That's really great. I like that. Scott P. answers, buying a fresh calzone while my clothes warm in the pizza <laughs> oven. That's disgusting. Just a couple more. What are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? Terry M. answers, hey, I rolled that, S, that stuff up. <laughs> As soon as my unemployment ran out, and I've been busy putting it back into circulation. There you go. Adam A. answers, saving up enough weight to hold me underwater. Also, <laughs> proving that coins are an adequate measurement tool for weight encumbrance. That is an old school D&D joke. Suck it, millennials. <laughs> All right, Adam. <laughs> wow, taking a shot at millennials and in support of D&D. SLS answers witchcraft. 
<laughs> and lastly, from the Facebook, we have Neil C. Answer, Penny Stocks, you know, like Tom Brady. I am so glad that Tom Brady is losing tens of millions of dollars. At, of like, coins. Uh, <laughs> Bitcoin. Uh, jerk. And, Larry, you know, whenever they talk about all this stuff with um, – uh, Tom Brady or these celebrities who, uh, LeBron James, these celebrities who endorsed FTX and other cryptocurrency ads on TV. I, how the hell does Larry David miss that crit- criticism as well? He was one of the biggest ones in support of it. So I don't know what, never mentioned in the Times. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Now, this next part may sound familiar to some of you who tuned into our show back on Monday, June 26th, the day prior to what will hopefully be the final surgery in my more-than-year-long health crisis. But due to a technical difficulty, we were not able to properly record, save, and store to that Patreon podcast. So we're trying again this week. So on a very special Patreon podcast Thursday, there's a a lot of hate going around nowadays. Everybody's talking about it. It's all the rage, in fact. But why so much anger, so much fear, so many feelings of being unfairly wronged by someone or something else? And why is so little directed at us? We rarely get any negative feedback here on This Is Hell, which sucks because it makes great content. No matter how hard we've tried to provoke the right, the center, and the left, we never get hate mail or get suspended by social media platforms. However, following our shows uh, the week before I had my last surgery, we heard from very, very upset people. A libertarian who called one of our guests a Marxist and a Marxist who complained that this very same guest was hyper-liberal. Both upset due to exaggerated fear, a feeling of being insulted, sparking anger enough to send us what could be called hate mail, and we want to thank them for doing so. Also, can you guess which of the three topics we discussed that week caused all the anger? Was it A, a history of Stop Cop City, B, a call for Stop Cop City and all justice and environmental movements to embrace chaotic protest, or C, transgender myths? The only way to find out is to become a Patreon subscriber and listen to our Patreon podcast this Thursday. Also on Patreon for the second Patreon podcast in a row, we are playing an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, who sadly recently passed away. And on our last Patreon, we played our 2004 talk with him about his then-just-published memoir. But back in 2000, Daniel was also on the show a year prior to 9-11, which is something to keep in mind when you hear our conversation about the Pentagon Papers. But wait, there's more. We will also share what the high school class of 2023 thinks of itself when it thinks of their classmates and underclassmen. Words of advice, nay, words of wisdom that we should all heed. Or not, mostly not, as they were reported in a small rural Michigan town's weekly newspaper. That's all on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell on Thursday, which goes live at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the Moment of Truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I know you have. Hefe on the line.
self-help to help you help the owning class. Stoicism is the latest philosophical fad. Here are 10 quotes from a pop stoic named Ryan Holiday, collected by entrepreneur Darius Faru. I assume Darius is the one whose comments follow each quotation. I'll be using the Maxwell Smart voice for Ryan's quotations and the Maxwell Stupid voice for what I assume is Darius's commentary. 1. Where the head goes, the body follows. Perception precedes action. Right action follows the right perspective. When something happens, you decide what it means. You have the power to choose how you perceive every situation in life. <clears throat> so usually, yes. However, this chooses to ignore and even by implication belittle those who don't have that ability, that power. Many cannot even cultivate that power. Their feelings are valid, though, and the Stoics' judgment of them is not. I'm sure somewhere in the vast body of Stoicism, even contemporary Stoicism, there's a definition of right action. There's also right action in Buddhism. Are they the same? Are they arrived at the same way? In any case, right action is a fraught, that is to say, loaded concept. No, thank you. I can't afford to panic. Some things make us emotional, but you have to practice to keep your emotions in control. In every situation, no matter how bad it is, keep calm and try to find a solution. Uh, frequently, there isn't time to respond with measured urgency. I'm sure there's a stoic rebuttal of this, but I'm not sure it would be satisfying. Also, there are those who tend to respond to joyful occasions as well as fearful ones with spontaneity. Stoicism presupposes that all people can achieve emotional control. In this sense, the most irritating sense, it is an ableist philosophy. I don't panic in emergencies. I become calm, even withdrawn, when all around me are losing their heads. It's a little sociopathic, really. Panicking isn't a healthy response, but detached, considered calm seems the wrong response in many circumstances as well. No one is asking you to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. See the world for what it is, not what you want it to be or what it should be. This might be the most fraught, that is to say, loaded dictum of this entire array. See the world for what it is? What happened to choosing how to perceive the world? Someone might indeed be asking you to look at the world through rose-colored glasses. They're the ones touting creative visualization, which is also a load of garbage generalizations. And how is choosing what events mean accepting or understanding life as it really is? Stoicism is stupid. This Stoic hero, Stoic Stan, this somewhat more palatable Jordan Peterson, seems to believe there is a definitive truth to which we all must adhere, yet that our perceptions are infinitely malleable in relation to this unchangeable benchmark reality. He is wrong. If you want momentum, you'll have to create it yourself, right now, by getting up and getting started. 
Only action will bring you closer to what you want. Start now, not tomorrow. Uh, no. Surfers ride waves. Yes, most paddle out to catch them, though that's not necessarily the rule. But however they get out there, I mean, no one is born without exertion, of course, their own and their mother's, they catch waves, and you can too. Life is not an inert canvas into which one must etch one's destiny with one's bare tooth and claw. We are waves. The mysterious beginning of the universe set all things into motion. Too much effort is how we got to this place where the thoroughly modern worker works 40 hours or more per week to secure their place on this planet they were born into. To be blunt, this overemphasis on growth, achievement, action, and participation is destroying us and the world most of us love. And who profits? The ones who want ever more profit, ever more spoils as recompense for their achievements. This all seems more like a prescription to become an achiever, using the successful as the benchmark. But the most successful by capitalism's distorted definitions are never satisfied. I'm sure there must be some doctrine in Stoicism of being content with what you have, i.e. moderation in all things. But I'm not hearing or reading it in the Stoic literature. Petronius was not a Stoic. It's okay to be discouraged. It's not okay to quit, chumley. Life is competition, and if you want to achieve anything in life, you have to work hard for it. When you think life is hard, know that it's supposed to be hard. Uh, life is not competition. This entrepreneurial ignoramus is thinking of capitalism, and it's not supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be whatever it is, everything. We aren't brute beasts living by the law of the jungle or the old west or the Spartan or Attic hierarchy. We don't have to stand for this brute wilderness definition of life and society. Be assured, quitting is your prerogative. Of course you make your commitments and keep them, but if keeping them reveals itself not to be in your best interest or in the interest of what you value, i.e. right action, you might find it imperative to quit. Who is Stoic Stan to judge? He hasn't walked in your shoes, let alone your feet, where the flesh really meets the road. We must be willing to roll the dice and lose. Prepare at the end of the day for none of it to work. We get disappointed too quickly. The main cause? We often expect things will turn out fine. We have too high expectations. No one can guarantee your success, so why not expect to lose? Accept it and move on. We? Who is this we? Sounds like they're talking to teenagers who lap up Jordan Peterson's 12 rules for being a model citizen of theocratic capitalism. Is Stan giving advice or making assumptions? Is there even a difference? What is the actual problem? Is it that people give up too easily? Or that people try to achieve so much success that they're killing themselves and the planet? Humanity overall needs to slow down. Rest. Give the world and each other a break from our manic, dog-eat-dog, might-makes-right program of 24-7 exploitation. The path of least resistance is a terrible teacher. 
Don't shy away from difficulty. Are you in a relationship because you fear loneliness? Are you staying at a job that you hate? Don't do things just because they're easy. How do you expect to grow? The bendy reed survives the tornado. The rigid elm shatters like a narcissist exposed and having a breakdown. Shove growth up your stoic peristalsis. Staying at a job you hate is actually hard. It's the hardest thing anyone ever does. People do it not out of laziness or fear, but because others depend on them. Stoic Stan, with one side of his mouth, says it's not okay to quit, then out of the other, that you should quit your job and your lousy relationship. Stan sounds very mixed up. Following society's adulations and conforming to its dictates to wake up every morning, be on time, procreate, and work a job the rewards of which are stolen from you and siphoned upwards to the overweening owning class. This is what Stan is advocating. Achieve. Push yourself. Get out of your comfort zone. These are advertising slogans. Stan is another snake oil salesman mouthing indoctrination into growth capitalism, the system that enslaves us and is destroying our world. The world might call you a pessimist. Who cares? It's far better to seem like a downer than to be blindsided or caught off guard. If you rehearse everything that can go wrong in your mind, you will not be caught by surprise when things actually go wrong. The Stoics called this premeditatio malorum, which means premeditation of evils. Really, is it really better to seem like a downer than to be caught off guard? Sounds like the way superstitious people ward off the evil eye. Stoic Stan is a terrible person. Obviously, there will be times when preparing for negative eventualities is a good idea, and times when it is a bad one. Don't waste a second looking back at your expectations. Face forward and face it with a smug little grin. We can't choose what happens to us, but we decide how to respond. The Stoics said, Amor fati, a love of fate. Don't just accept what happens to you, but like it too. Everything happens for a reason. Be grateful for it. It defines you. Hey, a little Latin is a dangerous thing. Amor fati, my ass. Stan's smug little grin is his real problem. Figure out the real reason your grin is so smug, Stan, and I bet you won't be so quick to tell on yourself by telling your audience the answer. Everything happens for a reason? Are you thick? Everything happens for no reason. The great law of nature is that it never stops. There is no end. When you overcome one obstacle, another one waits in the shadows. Life is a process of overcoming obstacles, one after the other. The obstacle becomes the way, so you might as well enjoy it. Uh, now, this is quite Buddhist and Vedic, and perhaps the only broadly valid point among those presented here. Change is one thing that can always be counted on. But it's debatable whether enjoying all of life transformations, good, bad, nurturing, or destructive, is possible or even desirable. It's hard to enjoy a bullet hole in your chest or a sun drowned during an ocean voyage. This is an open question, at least to those with open minds. Stoicism 
is just another motivational method of getting you to enjoy being a cog in the capitalist machine. We don't have to stand for this garbage, and we don't have to admire those who are successful and honored in a destructive and dishonorable society. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. We're up against the clock, which is a very uncomfortable position. So, Jeffy, Ow! We'll, it's not. We'll it's be, not. Go ahead. Where? What part of your body's up against? I don't even want to tell anybody. So, uh, I will be yeah. speaking with you soon. Looking forward to you visiting here in Chicago, and uh, I got to get back to uh, finishing up some stuff. All right, baby. All right. Everything happens for no reason, you know. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right. Pretending to know what I'm talking about <laughs> since 1996, this is Hal Richard. Please remind us, what is this week's question from Hal? And share the rest of our listeners' answers so we can uh, pronounce who the winner is. Announce, pronounce, whatever. This week's question from Hal is, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? I finally figured out the tweeter. The Twitter. <laughs> the tweeter <laughs> yeah. situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a p- pain in the arse. It is. To uh, find, find the, it where it is and then find the answers. Yes. Yeah. They don't make it easy. No. <laughs> Matt M. answers, bury myself in them and sleep the sleep of smog. <laughs> okay. Good Todd, Lord. D&D it, and yeah. Tolkien references on the same show. Where <laughs> have we gone wrong? Todd H. answers, tiddlywinks. Okay. Not a good tiddlywink thing. Though. And then our last answer for the day is from, or would you, or would that be a rhetorical question? <laughs> he answers, I use my hoarded coins as paperweights to flatten my pop-up sculptures. So that fascinated me, and I contacted, or would that be a rhetorical question? They replied, I also do small pop-up books. You can see the image on uh, our Twitter feed. I also do small pop-up books, a few of which my son has made digital versions of. One features my eccentric reading of Marx's Grandis. The white piece I shared with you was the sketch, or I'm sorry, the skeleton of a commissioned piece I did on affordable housing. So, or would that be a rhetorical question? You are the winner of this week's question from hell because that is the best response we got. I mean, it was you just got to go to our Twitter account at This Is Hell Radio. Go to the question from hell, see the big bag from Chipotle that Richard posted, and uh, and see the question about our coin shortage, and check out the video. It is absolutely stunning. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Or would that be a rhetorical question? And it's not. It's a statement. Uh, so that makes uh, you this week's winner. We'll contact you via Twitter, and then all you have to do is send us your mailing address and which piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want, and we'll get it in the mail to you immediately. My answer to this week's question from Hell, what are you going to do with all the coins you are hoarding? I'm taking my coins to one of those coins for cash machines, which converts your change into cryptocurrency, because it seems like the only sensible thing to do. Thanks to everyone who sent in your answer to this week's question from Hell. Richard, who have we confirmed for next week's shows? I believe we have M.E. O'Brien, author of Family, Abolition, Capitalism, and the Communism. Communizing. <laughs> Communizing of Care. Yeah. M.E. O'Brien co edits two magazines, Pinko on Gay Communism awesome. and. 
parapraxis on psychoanalytic theory and politics. She is also the co-author of the novel Everything for Everyone, an oral history of the New York Commune. 2052. Is that right? 2072. That is why it's a novel. It's, I mean, you know, I wasn't even going to put that in the bio, but I want to see this. I want to read this book, Everything for Everyone, an Oral History. It's a novel, Everything for Everyone, an Oral History of the New York Commune, 2052 to 2072. Who else is going to be on next week's show? Uh, returning to This Is Hell will be writer, ethnographer, and human rights activist, Dr. Michael Gould Wartofsky, who will be on to talk about his Tom Dispatch article, America, American Inquisition, field notes from the front lines of the government's war on the left. And we have somebody else returning to the This Is Hell next week. Brazil correspondent Brian Meir, who has launched a new substack called Delinking Brazil. His first post at the site is titled Bolsonaro Coalition implodes as tax reform amendment approved. 30-year fight to reform Brazil's Byzantine tax code realized as constitutional amendment passes lower house in crushing defeat for Bolsonaro-ismo. There will be a live past inside the present with Sebastian Vopper and this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi plus Jeff Dorch in another moment of truth. Huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Richard Norwood, Dan Kugler, Kat Jarvin, and thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian, and to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Humiston, just because huge thanks to producer Will Ippen, who, despite being on vacation, has kept the entire show updated online. Really appreciate it, Will. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I'll be hating on hate and angry at anger, as well as sharing an interview with the late, great Daniel Ellsberg from the year 2000. This is how office hours are back and do happen tonight. Yes, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, has returned to its regularly scheduled Wednesday evenings. That's the only thing I say like Tom Brokaw, regularly. I, I can't get that thing out of my Has returned to uh, its regularly scheduled uh, Wednesday evenings starting around 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. And we hope to see all of you at the This Is Hell 27th Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party, an art opening of This Is Art, including live music, good food, a raffle, and like I said, an art opening. It all happens on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, running all day and night at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows is by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>